So one of my favorite stories from Dr. Martin Luther King comes from his book, Stride Towards Freedom. And it's uh, sort of an autobiographical curtain pulling. We don't get this a lot with MLK. Like, he doesn't really talk about his prayer life. It's really obvious that he has one when, when he's making these speeches and these proclamations. This happens during the Montgomery bus boycotts um, on Friday, January 27, 1956, right after the arrest of Rosa Parks. And when I think of Dr. King, I think of this resolute leader, this steadfast, like, like singular person who's assured and knows what he's doing. But this is what he writes. He says, I was ready to give up with my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them with strength and courage, uh, without strength and courage, they too will falter. But I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And then he said, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I have never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for the truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. This is a great epiphany moment for this season that we're in where Dr. King sensed and became aware of God's strengthening and comforting presence. This is known as a pretty significant pivot point in his ministry. This is the vision in the kitchen that equipped him to go on up to the mountain to proclaim God's justice and mercy to places where there was severe injustice and suffering. I take great comfort in the fact that God shows up and continues to show up in our exhaustion, in our fear, in our anxiety, in our emptiness. And in these moments and in those places where the coffee goes cold and we have nothing left. So it's in that spirit of epiphany. When I say epiphany, I mean God showing up and showing out in our graced ability to perceive it and to receive it. That's what epiphany is. It's not just us having good ideas. It's God showing up and we welcome him. That, that we come to our scripture passage today as, as Gary read and I supplemented at the end of the first chapter of John's gospel. We're already, if you read John's gospel, and I, I'd recommend you do this in the new year, notice just even in the first chapter, how we're already starting to get a sense of how strange and radically God is working in real places in this gospel. How salvation is coming about in places you wouldn't necessarily expect, but also in places you would imagine. Like last week, um, we read in Mark's gospel, but there's an, a story about it that John writes. Places you would expect, like the Jordan River, the sky split open, God descends and God's spirit descends like a dove and out of that you hear this voice saying you are my son whom I love 
and I'm well pleased with you, but also in places you wouldn't expect. You see, the word put on flesh, and the message puts it this way, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus has left home with the Father and Spirit to make his home with us in real places. So often our biggest barrier to understanding and joining in this work is that we're so turned off or tuned out to where God should be. If we're even thinking about it at all, we expect Jesus to meet us on our own terms. In a season that isn't so busy for us, right? Wouldn't that be nice? God would just meet you when you're kind of ready for him, when like your infant is sleep trained or like when the semester lets up and I'm not so busy. God, then we can meet, or like in a place that's appropriate, like where I'm comfortable or where I have like the right shoes at the right time. We treat Jesus sometimes and, uh, as like an out-of-town guest where, where we get him on our schedule. We say, I'll meet you for 90 minutes on a Thursday at this great lunch spot. That way you don't have to see all the laundry on my floor or the toilet bowl rings or the toys and the books strewn about my house, Right? We don't want Jesus to drive past our neighbor's junky yard or see, like, our apartment or our home in the suburbs. We're kind of self-conscious about that. But Jesus has other plans. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, our neighborhood, but also that other neighborhood. He, empowered by the Spirit, will come from and go to wherever he pleases when he pleases. We might meet him when we're ready and in need and when we cry out, but probably most often he'll surprise us. And he'll call out from those places, or maybe even to those places that don't quite make sense. Jesus will see us and will find us. So a little bit about places like that. I, I couldn't help but think about the Genesis story for Oak Church when we planted this church and as I look around, I don't see many of the folks that were around about three and a half years ago, which is great and is a testament, a testament of God's faithfulness of calling and bringing people and adding parts and helping us send people uh, faithfully. But when we were first called to this neighborhood and this building and ministry here, I can't help but remember some of the things that, that were said uh, about this place, like not this building, but widely. Some pretty rude things about like how dangerous it was here. Um, someone wanted to donate a vehicle when we were first starting, but they said, you probably don't want to park that vehicle here. Um, or the, the, it talked about how like, oh, Lakewood used to be a nice place, but people don't go there anymore. Or they talked about how uh, demographics in the neighborhood change, or they talked about how ministry was going to be so hard there because it's a very progressive place, and of course progressive people can't know God or something like that. All these things like maybe had a little measure of truth, but were mostly unhelpful, and, and like they had this appalling underlying assumption, as we'll see in a minute, that's similar to Nathaniel's, that somehow Jesus doesn't belong in Lakewood, or that God hasn't already been at work here for a long time. That's what I love about worshiping here and seeing all these names on the windows. God has been at work here for a long time. Look at some of the dates. Look at some of the names that are also street names around Durham. Like these are faithful people who have been 
part of building the city that we love that, that, you know, we could use a little bit of a history lesson to know that how God has been at work. Some of these assumptions act like the church can't grow and thrive in strange or harsh environs, or that the Spirit won't empower or open surprising doors. See how closed off this view of God in the world is like when we assume these things about places? So after leaving John the Baptist, who, again, I would say is perhaps the most tuned-in person, not only to who Jesus is, he says the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but also like who that makes him. Like if we could learn a little bit from John the Baptist about that. Basically, John, because Jesus is who Jesus is, John becomes like an ancient Near Eastern version of that guy that stands in the corner holding the arrow sign, like flipping it around, just like pointing constantly at Jesus, right? And so after Jesus leaves John the Baptist, he heads towards Galilee, which is a village in northern Israel where Jesus grew up. And on the way, he finds Philip, and he calls to Philip, and he says, follow me. And then we're told, like, an unsatisfyingly little amount about how, how this whole interaction went down. Philip just kind of like, okay, I'll follow you, you know? Um, because then the next line, we, we find... We, we find Philip joining in the finding. It says, Jesus found Philip. It says, come follow me. And now the next thing we, we know is that, that uh, Philip is finding Nathaniel and introducing Jesus to his buddy. Whereas Philip seemed like a relatively easy convert. Now Nathaniel, let's just say, is a little more discerning. Philip might be kind of like that Bible junkie type, you know? You know that person who's like your friend and... And, like, you kind of trust them, but you never really know if they're, like, having a good experience because they're kind of, like, overthinking this thing, right? I think that's a little bit of how Nathaniel is. Like, he's devout. He knows his stuff. And he's not about to let someone put something by him. Well, it seems like Nathaniel is certainly expecting something to happen and someone to come. It had to be on his terms, or at least as he understood them. And it had to be from his place, or at the very least, not that place. Like Nate's first comment is, whoa, 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 did you just say Nazareth? Like, that, that's what he says. Wait, Nazareth? You almost had to say, like, in a, I can't do the voice, like, like the playoffs voice, you know, like Nazareth, right? Nothing good can come from that expletive hole. Like, Nazareth was that S-Town rival high school 10 miles down the road. Nazareth was on the other side of the tracks. Nazareth was where those people lived, or maybe not that kind of person lived, that, like, good, important God type of person could come from there. In short, you've got good ideas, Jesus, but Nazareth is a non-starter. I give Nathaniel a lot of credit for studying up and seeming to know where the lines are drawn on what God said and what God's going to do when a Messiah would come to restore Israel. But it seems that these very expectations are what's getting in the way from him being able to recognize what the Savior would look like when the Savior shows up. So Philip helps this along. He seems to have learned a whole lot in a little time from Jesus. He has this like straightforward intrigue technique. He says, come and see. Like that's 
I don't know, come and see it. Like, side note, this is a really amazing evangelism strategy. So many of us are very uncomfortable with, like, practicing evangelism. But here's what he did. <laughs> here's what he models. He finds someone who he already knows who is in plain sight. I would argue it's not even really finding someone if they're not hiding, right? He invites them to investigate and meet Jesus for themselves. This seems a pretty doable strategy for evangelism. Find someone in plain sight and invite them to meet Jesus for themselves. That doesn't seem that weird, that hard, or that coercive. And then Jesus steps in and says to Nathaniel, I saw you while you were under the fig tree even before Philip called you. Like Dr. King, everything changed at that moment for Nathaniel. Nathaniel went from a narrow and borderline bigoted idea of who Jesus was and what he was about to a laser-focused confession that Jesus was surely fit to be teacher, called him rabbi, son of God, and king of Israel. This is a massive, like, seismic epiphany, which stemmed mostly from Jesus telling Nathaniel that he was seen and that he was known before he was even called. This makes me wonder what that would do for you and I if we really knew that before Jesus even called us, we were known and we were seen. Before you were called, you were known and you were seen by God. While Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree, while you were scrolling through your Instagram feed while you were waiting for the bus, I saw you. While you were like, Folding a load of laundry, I saw you, right? While you were returning a shopping cart, I saw you. Or while you were hiding in your room because you didn't want anyone else to see you crying, I saw you. What, what would that do for us if we knew that? For me, I think it'd blow wide open the possibilities of life with God. If... If we're this seen and this known, surely that means that my sin is exposed, like the things I do in the dark. And I think that's why we're anxious about this maybe a little bit. But it also means that the church doors are never closed, like blown wide open. As Wendell Berry puts it, this means that there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. And that means everything has the possibility to be a sacred space, a meeting with God, or as the psalmist adds, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Every space, every place. This is why upon this revelation by Nathaniel, Jesus starts talking about angels. Logic, logical move next, right? Which, <laughs> it seems really strange, but if you make the connection to the story that Jesus is working in, this is huge. This is the story of Jacob's ladder from Genesis 28, Matt. I, I think I have some, a slide with, with this text. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there. <coughs> when the sun had set in, he took one of the stones of that place and put it near his head. 
Then he laid there. He dreamed and saw a raised staircase, its foundation on earth and its top touching the sky. And God's messengers were ascending and descending on it. Suddenly, suddenly the Lord was standing on it saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will become like the dust of the earth. You will spread out to the west, east, north, and south. Every family on earth will be blessed because of you and your descendants. I am with you now. I will protect you everywhere you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will never leave you until you've done everything that I have promised you. And then when Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought to himself, the Lord is definitely in this place. I didn't know it. He was terrified, and he thought, this sacred place is awesome. It's not other than God's house in the entrance to heaven. After Jacob got up early in the morning, he took the stone that he had put uh, under his head, and he set it up as a sacred pillar. He poured oil on top of it, and he named that sacred place Bethel, though Luz was its original name. And Jacob made a solemn promise. If God is with me and protects me on this trip I'm taking gives me bread to eat and clothes to wear, and I return safely, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I've set up as a sacred pillar will be God's house. And of everything you give me, I will give a tenth back to you. Do you see the conversion that's happening here? Like the conversion of of Jacob's imagination and, and that kind of overlays on this conversion of Nathaniel? Like what started out, even for Jacob, as a Nazareth, this like random place and in Nazareth like you use a rock for a pillow like that's how random then because God has shown up becomes Bethel the house of God the entrance to heaven you see do you see the possibility like that means that God was there the whole time and Jacob woke up to it that means Nathaniel was seen and known the whole time but became aware of it do you, see, do you see what that means for us, like that, that we can go out of these doors after potluck and these places that, that we, don't, we don't think God could possibly care about or show up in, that God's already there and that they're actually the entrance to heaven. Like when I was preparing this sermon, I was really going back and forth about like a, a really obvious subtext that's here about whether I would like explicitly mention like the the president's remarks this this week about certain places being like sewage spots um, places like Haiti or the multiple and varied countries that make up the continent of Africa and I think it's easy when you hear something like that to just get mad like you only see red with rage that someone could be that like either careless or like purposefully inflammatory right that like we expect that our leader wouldn't speak that way or that like I, yeah we, we expect more maybe we shouldn't at this point but don't just get mad when you hear those things I think getting mad locates that somewhere else and kind of lets you and I off the hook for this, because I think we suffer from a similarly stunted imagination. 
Because you see, you don't call a place a name like that, and you don't like avoid visiting a people if you think that something important is happening there or that something can happen there. You don't say those words if you have a conviction that these places of your deepest disinterest or disdain or discontent are likely or like are just as likely or maybe more so to be places that would house the divine, right? Like that's what I think is, is underlying a, a really dumb phrase like that. It's like, you just don't think that they're that important and that God cares about that and that God is there already. So I challenge you this week, take a, take a map. I don't think you'll be able to even see much on this map. Just like take a map of Durham or the city that you live in and plot on it. Plot on it at the places that you go, like, like the, where you work, where your kids go to school, where you drive, like the routes that you regularly drive, where you eat, where you play, um, where your friends live, um, the places that you care about in Durham. Like plot those things. And then notice the gaps. <laughs> notice those places in Durham that you don't, you've never even seen. You've never even been there. Like pay attention to those places because those places are, are potential Nazareths, which also means they're potential Bethels, right? Places that are the house of God, the entrance to heaven. Not, not every one of them might necessarily be, but notice the patterns and pay attention. Pay attention to maybe even hearing a call from those places or a call towards those places. And when you go, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're bringing God with you because God's been there a long time already. Those places are important. Those places house the divine. So in short, there's, there's not really such a thing as a crap hole country or city or place. There's only places where God resides. What if we had, what, what if we had that conversion of our imaginations right there? Like, I think that would make the, the statements, it would make us less mad and just make them as utterly ridiculous as they really are to us. So as we go out from here, I hope all this kind of messes with you a, a little bit. Not just so you'd be more aware of how God seems to have a preferential option for the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. But that the places that they're from or that they're pushed towards, but also that your own God consciousness will be expanded. Like that you'd be more conscious of how God has found you and seen you before he's even called you. I also hope that your God invitation will increase. That calling, come and see, explore, investigate, discover. And most of all, that your God expectation will grow. Because there, like, if we believe what, <coughs> what Jesus is saying, that Nathaniel will experience greater things. It means this thin membrane between heaven and earth is being pierced all around us at all times. That the curtain is being slowly pulled back and the divine is gaining ground and that the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Will you guys pray with me?
Father, we thank you for this story, this story that is so real. We thank you for the lectionary that just seems to know what the news is going to be and, and what our hearts and our imaginations need, uh, a story um, to remember and to join in. Lord, be with us this week as, as, we, as we do these, these explorations, these, these um, in some cases, repentances of the, the places we assume are, are not worth you being, these Nazareths. And Lord, uh, renew us by your spirit. Make these epiphany moments pop that we might realize that we're surrounded by Bethel's and that maybe the most appropriate response is to build an altar of the encounter that we have with you. Lord, we pray for those encounters. Open our eyes and ears and hearts. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.